So we've, uh, this is our second week in our series about the life of King David, Lessons in Chaos, um, a man who lived in a lot of chaos, a man who's, um, if you look through the scriptures in the Old Testament, has more details about his life than probably any other person in the Old Testament. And it's a man who, who became king, but in the meantime, like he slayed giants, right? He made, he made these monumental mistakes in his life. And he was called a man after God's own heart. Amidst chaos, amidst lots of different things that just happened in his life, the question is, like, what can we learn from all of that? Right? Like, well, what is there to be learned from his life? And I would encourage you, actually, at the bottom of your outline today, and last week you'll see it too, like, there's, there's actually some information in the scoop about how to get a part, be a part of the version plan um, about David's life and how to engage in that. And so I'd encourage you to engage in that as well. But we're going to talk about it this morning. We're going to jump into King David's story this morning and talk a little bit about how is it relevant to us. Like this thing that um, we, we learn from David's story today is relevant not just to us right now, but to the future version of you too. Like if you haven't experienced it yet, you will experience it. It has been a part of every season of every person in here's life. And, that, and it's basically this. The ways of God, the things that God values most, the way that God would encourage us to go about something seem most irrelevant and most useless to us when we are angry, when we are lonely, or when we're afraid. When we feel those powerful emotions, that is the time when we're in most danger of saying, I don't think so, God. These three conditions, those three powerful emotions, are kind of the kind of things that drive us the most dedicated, devout, disciplined among us to drive over top of the boundaries that we've set for ourselves in relationships, in life. These are the three conditions that drive us beyond the guardrails of our life that we set up for ourselves. We're like, I'm not going to go any further. But when we get in those conditions, we will step right past those guardrails in our, in our job, in our life, in our financially, professionally. And they lead to some of our greatest regrets. That'll be, and they're going to be part of, when you feel those emotions, if you don't know what to do when you feel those emotions, they're going to be part of your future regrets. Because in that moment when you feel, and you felt this, right, compelled to do something, to do anything, I've got to solve this, I've got to do something about this, I can't stand it anymore, that's, that's when we get in trouble. That's when we follow our instincts most. You know, we're just like moving through it like our natural inclination, that fight and flight mechanism gets trouble, tra- triggered, and we just... We make decisions that don't make our life less complicated. They make our lives more complicated. We go after things that we're like, ah, we wouldn't normally do, but now we're doing it. And it's kind of like, have you ever been in a canoe? My my wife and I, so we had a staff retreat last year, and my wife and I, and Sean Bolton actually, were in a canoe together. And my wife does not love canoes. And as it turned out, um, we didn't know this at the time, but we were in the canoe backwards. The seats were arranged such that we didn't realize that, like, anyway, so... So it was a hilarious conundrum to start off with as this canoe went back and forth across the lake this way until we got to the other side. And I was like, get out. I can't take it anymore. We're rearranging. This was terrible. But Susie, if you know Susie, 
she just laughed. Like, she get in the, it's totally counterintuitive, right, when you get in the canoe as to which side, what, what you should do to balance. And I thought I was being a gentleman, so I sat on the floor, and she sat on the seat, and it just made it worse. And she was, like, grabbing the sides of the canoe, to, like, cause to, to the balance. And I thought we were going over multiple times. And then she just started giggling and laughing. And then only just made it worse, right? Like, we're just, I'm like, there's no way we're getting across this lake. There's no way we're getting across this lake without being soaked, right? Because you know this, if you've ever been a canoe, when you start grabbing the sides of the canoe, that's when you're in trouble. Like you actually, have to, it's almost counterintuitive, right? Like if I'm going to step this way, I've got to lean this way. Like it's totally counterintuitive. And that's kind of the way it is when we walk in to these kind of emotions in our life. When we have these moments in our life where we feel all of these powerful emotions, when we're about to make a terrible life decision, we've got to live a little bit counterintuitively, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to jump into the story of David, and uh, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22, and that's where we'll spend our time, and I uh, just want to, want to set us up for what's happening in the story, kind of catch you up on the story a little bit. So David in his life makes two colossal failures. One of them is in his 50s, right? and, and that's probably one of his most famous colossal failures. But one of them is in his 20s, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. And it's, it's a colossal failure that he's not really well known for, but it's actually one of the most dramatic stories that you're going to find in Scripture. Now, David, you remember, is a legend. I mean, like, to today, even like sportscasters still use David's name, right? The David versus Goliath scenario. Like, they still talk about it. Everybody knows this story. That like before he became king, what made him famous? This moment that people wrote songs about when David slayed this giant Goliath. This is the stuff that people know him for. But we're going to talk about some stuff that happened before he come, becomes king. There's this time in his life where he becomes famous. He slays this giant. King Saul sees this young man with all this potential. Right? And kind of engages him, and everybody's singing songs about him, and he sees that he has a lot of potential. But then King Saul also sees this other thing. King, king Saul's the current king, and he looks at David, this young man, this young boy in his teenage years, who is growing in influence and power, and he sees something dangerous that is, he's cautious, like, this might cost me something. And so King David decides, I better come up with a plan to control this guy's influence, or it's going to get out of control. So he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll get him into my family where I can keep a close eye on him and control him a little bit. So he offers him one of his daughters, and at 15 years old, David says, no. David's like, I'm not worthy of it. I don't, you know, maybe he's 15. He's like, I'm not ready to be married. But he, he turns the king down very graciously, and of course, that just increases his influence because everybody's like, wow, isn't he such a humble kid, right? Like, Wow, David. And then a little bit later, as time goes on, David does fall in love with one of King's daughters named Michal. And and when he falls in love with her, he gets married. And and in the meantime, like King David just keeps trying, or King Saul keeps trying stuff to get control over him. But when he finally gets married into the family, as it turns out, King Saul's plan is terrible. Because everybody in King Saul's family loves David more than Saul. Like, he's so likable. Like, 
His wife loves him. His son Jonathan adores him. They're like best friends. Like everybody loves him. And King Saul, it just frustrates him more and more and more. And so David becomes more and more influential. And King Saul becomes more and more and more jealous. So he thinks, I got to get rid of this kid. I got to get rid of this kid. I got to get him out. I don't want to do it myself. So he starts sending him out on all these missions to the Philistines. And he's like, like the impossible, he surely will die in this mission. Only not only does he survive, like he comes back and he's thriving. Like he's, he's slaughtered the Philistines and he just gains more and more popularity. People like him and adore him all the more. And so this continues to escalate, right? And, and, and Saul is com- just completely frustrated. And that turns out David is a great musician. So he invites him to dinner and he says, listen, will you play the harp for me? And while David's getting into the harp, playing it, right? King Saul... I don't know if this is the way you play the, the this is the air harp. So it, as he's playing the harp, King Saul picks up a spear, and he throws it at David to kill him. Now, some of you thought that your in-laws were crazy, right? Like, this is a whole new level, right? This is a whole new place. And so David does what every one of us would do. He stops showing up for dinner, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not showing up here anymore. I am clearly not welcome. This is clearly dangerous. And so he stops showing up. And King Saul, now he doesn't even have him in his presence. So now King Saul is like trying to get him arrested, trying to get him killed. But every time he does, David slips through his fingers because his wife Michal and his friend Jonathan keep giving him the clues and helping him get out of it. And this all accumulates in this dinner that we're going to visit and start the story in when King Saul has his family there and he is out of his mind frustrated. He is angry as he can be, and he asked Jonathan, his son, where's David at? And so in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Right? Now, one hopes that Jonathan's mother was not at the table, because that would be fairly awkward. Right? Like, Time, um, I feel, you know, that moment where you're like, somebody needs some counseling, right? Like, like this is this moment, and he's so angry. And he says to Jonathan, he says, listen, do you not know as long as the son of Jesse, that would be David, as long as David is alive, do you not understand this? He stands between you and your future. He stands between me and our family's future do you not know that he is the one who must be killed we can't establish anything here without that gives jonathan every reason to throw david under the breast and says now go get him and bring him here so here's what jonathan does he leaves the dinner he goes to david immediately and he says david i know you thought it was bad but it is much worse than you thought it was you have to get out of town not just out of town Like, you've got to get out of the country. Like, he is not going to stop until you are dead. So you've got to run. You've got to go. He's threatened by you. You can't stay. Now, I want you to think about this. At this point, David is about 22 years old. And suddenly, David, in this moment, in this news, suddenly it occurs to David that he has lost his job, his source of income, his family, He's got no place to go. He can't even go back to his own 
family of origin. There is no home for him, no place. He has been betrayed by the man that he risked his life for over and over and over again. He has been betrayed by the nation that he laid down his life for and was fighting for. This is him. He's angry. And he's isolated. And he's afraid. David does what we all do when we're angry and afraid and abandoned. Panics. Something, and it's like, I got to do something. And he takes matters into his own hands. He says, I got to do something. He takes matters into his hands. And, and he loses sight of something that he understood earlier that we all understand until we get in this moment when we're in that panic position that God is always with him, that God's always with us. Right in the middle of it. But in this moment, this is not how David expected life to go. I mean, God brought him to this moment. God did all of this stuff. He had all of this moment, this momentum, and this influence. And in this moment, this is not how it was supposed to go. Have you ever felt that? Like, life is not going the way you expected. It's not fair. It's not right. And this dim moment where the this David, who had had God's promises, why is he going to run? David, why are you about to abandon all of your morals? Why are you about to abandon all the promises of God? Have you been to that place? That moment where you're just afraid, where you're just like, there's no way. I got to do something. There's something that like, like life just didn't go the way you expected, and God told you something in the light, but now you're in the dark, and it is not going the way you expected, and it is hard, and in this moment, you are filled with doubts. You look at some seasons of your life, some moments, where you felt that way, where you identify with David in that, you know? You, you shouldn't have quit that job, but you did. You shouldn't have you shouldn't have taken that drink or taken that pill, but you did. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have called that person back. You shouldn't have called her back. You shouldn't have called him back, but you did. You shouldn't have posted that thing. You shouldn't have said that thing, but it just came right out. You ask yourself questions like, why did I spend that money on that? Why did I? Why did I just? Why didn't I? Why did I run from that? Why didn't I just take a step of faith? Why didn't I just trust God? How did you get there? Like, how did you get there? Really? Simple. You felt abandoned. You felt betrayed. You felt afraid. You're angry. You're bitter, and you panicked. That's what David did, and that's what we do. We get in those moments, we face these giants, and we panic, and we only see like two options, right? I either got to fight or flight, and I am panicked. I got to do something. And so we take matters into our own hands. We don't, we don't understand that faith, we forget that faith is a third option, and we panic. And the lesson that we're going to learn today that David would have benefited from, that we all could benefit from, is this, don't panic. Pause and pray. 
Don't panic. Pause and pray. Take a moment when you feel those powerful emotions. You know, emotions aren't something that you should pack away and shove down. Um, I was just joking with somebody else about this the other day. They said that someone shared like a really powerful, painful moment with them. And as soon as it like started to surface, they, they managed to say, but I'm going to be okay. It's going to be fun. And they, they managed to shove it right back down, right? Like the good old Pennsylvania way, right? The human way. Like I felt something there for a second. Let me shove it back down inside of me now, right? Because I'm going to be fine but it's still driving you. It's still making you make terrible decisions. You can't just shove it down and pretend it's not there. You can't overcome it, and eventually it becomes overwhelming. And in that moment, you have to decide, am I going to allow this this emotion to be a conversation with God? Am I going to pause and pray? Am I going to take my desperation into my own hands, or am I going to take my desperation to God and say, God, I need your help in this moment? So David, he panics. This is what he does. He, he goes to a place called Nob. Now, why are you going to Nob, David? What's a Nob? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where he goes to wherever the Ark was. I mean, this is the Jewish foundational belief. The Ark, the ark had a special significance for them. And wherever the Ark was, it was the epicenter of worship. It's where the priests were. And so David runs to that place. And you think, maybe that was a good decision, David. Maybe you're going to God. But look where David really is. 1 Samuel chapter 21 says, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met him. Why, why is the priest trembling when he meets him? Because when David came, usually David had a lot of warriors with him. You heard David come before he arrived, and David shows up to the priest, and there's nobody with him. And the priest asked him, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? What is going on, David? The priest is surprised. David looks disheveled. He looks nervous. You ever met, you know, you ever look in the mirror when you're in like this place, when you're like nervous, disheveled, you're like, you're not thinking clearly. You have the friend that you've seen them in this moment where they're like, they're not thinking clearly. And you're like, oh man, this is where the priest is, right? And David. David recognizes that the priest is suspicious, right? He realizes he hadn't thought about it until this moment when he shows up in panic in his presence and he has to make a choice because this priest is asking him questions he did not anticipate to be asked and he has to make a choice in this moment. And so David responds. David says, oh man, I got to come up with something here. I got to I got to do something. I got I to gotta answer this question I was not prepared for, right? So David answers the priest. Right? And he, he's ready. He's like, listen, I got to come up. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Right? So David sets the scene. He's like, I know. I know. The king has sent me on a mission. Right? You know, you feel it, right? Like David's building it up. And I'm a secret mission. That's, that's my excuse, right? That's what's going on. Nobody else knows about this. Don't tell anybody about it. You know, and after, you know, you're going to get it for so long, in 30 seconds, you're going to close up. David, right? This is David. He's in this moment. That's his life. And he does this to this priest, right? And he's, he's making stuff up. He wants to engage him in it. And here's what's crazy. He's lying. But if you know about David, and we, we talked about this last week, right? David is against lying. David loves God's law. I mean, David 
is at the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The original tablets with God's top ten commandments, right? Thou shalt not, right, thou shalt not lie. David's right there in his presence. What God said, he's in the priest's presence of the priest, and he's against lying, but in this moment, David lies. He chooses to betray everything that he says he's for, that he says he's against. And why is he lying? You know why, don't you? He's afraid. He's afraid he's going to get no help. He's been abandoned. He's been betrayed. He doesn't know where to turn. He's in this moment. I've got to do something. I'm isolated. I've got to do something. And in that moment, when you feel isolated, when you feel abandoned, when you feel lonely, when things haven't gone the way you expected and you don't know what to do about it, you don't choose the ways of God. You take things into your own hands. So he says, listen, this is great, right? He's, he's expanding on it. You, know, you ever have that moment like parents when your kids are telling you something, you know they're lying, and they're not very good at it, right? When they're little kids, like, so they start telling you the story, and they start making up details, and they're terrible details, and you know it the whole time. And inside, you know that you shouldn't be laughing, but on the inside, it's, it's hilarious to you, right? Like that moment. And so this is David, right? right? He says, as for my men, now you know you don't want to know where men is. As for my men, I've told them to to meet me at um, a, a certain place. Like, come on, David, that's just lame. Like, you can't even come up with a good place. Like in this moment, you're terrible at lying, David. And here he is. Like, uh, I've told him to meet me at a certain place. But he says it because he doesn't have any. There's nobody with him. He's on his own. And he thinks, if I don't, if I don't make up this story, this priest is never going to help me, and I'm going to continue to have to handle this all on my own, and I'm afraid. He says, now then. He says, what do you have on hand? And they're like, he says, give me five loaves of bread, loaves of bread or whatever you can find. And the priest answers and says, listen, I don't even have any ordinary bread. I don't have any to give you. All I have is the consecrated bread, the bread that we put on the altar at Sabbath to recognize that God is holy, that we worship God, that everything comes from God. That's all I have. And so, like, you are the men that are with you. Like, you would have to be pure to even eat it. And David is far from having a pure heart in this moment. So David lies, and he takes the bread. He talks him into it. And we've got to ask ourselves, you're here last week, right? Aren't you asking yourself right now, like, where, where is that David? Like the, I trust in you, Lord, I put my hope in you all day long. Where's that David? Where's, where's the David, right, that like, God took from a nobody to a somebody? Where's the David that says, God, I know that you can protect me. I know that you can help me. Where'd he go? He got lost in his loneliness and his abandonment when he's afraid. He lost his job, his family, everything else. So the priest, he gives him the consecrated bread. Verse 8, David asks Ahimelech, he says, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I mean, that's where I usually come looking for spears and swords at the church. right? Don't you have a spear or a sword here or any other weapon? Because, and, and, and listen, listen, the reason I'm looking for it is because I'm on the secret mission. 
and I didn't even have time to get my sword. Like I'm on a secret mission that I need a weapon, but I, I was so secret. It was so urgent. I had to run out, you know, in my shorts and my sneakers. That's all I got. And so get this. This is, this is like this is moment, right? The priest replies, the only weapon here, the only thing I have here is not just a weapon. It's the weapon. It's the sword of Goliath. The sword that you took from Goliath that day that you went down into the valley of Elah, the day that you faced him with a slingshot, the day that you looked David, Goliath in the eye and said, you come against me with a spear and a sword, but I come against you with the Lord of hosts. And today he will deliver you into my hand. Today everyone will know that God is the God of Israel because I will not just I will not just kill you, I will behead you, and we will feed the whole army of the Philistines and the carcasses to the birds today. Where's that David? How did he get to be this frightened, lying man? What happened to that clear-eyed, courageous, God-fearing boy who said, God will show up. I'm not putting my hope in a spear or a javelin or a sword. What happened to that kid? Where's that faith? We all know what happened to that kid, don't we? In this moment, he faced new giants that were unlike Goliath. Unlike anything he had ever faced, right? Fear, anger, loneliness, these new giants in his life. He said, I don't know how to defeat them. I don't know what to do with them. These are the giants in our life that have the potential to defeat us, to make us forget everything that God did in our past to deliver us, everything that God could do. These are the giants that defeat us. Verse, chapter 21, verse 9. The priest replies, here's the sword of Goliath. He gives him the sword. That's the only one we have. And you know what the priest is thinking? The same thing that you and I think when we have that friend that's in that spot where they're about to make a terrible decision and they're telling us about this decision and all the rationale to get there and what they're about to do, and you're going, oh, man, this is a terrible idea, right? This is not going to make your life better. It's going to make it more complicated. And every time they share something with you, you're just more and more puzzled and you're thinking, none of this makes sense to me, right? right? Like it's, they're about to make this terrible decision on a relationship that's based on anger or it's based on loneliness, it's based on bitterness. They feel abandoned. They're about to make a decision and you're thinking, no, 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 no. Don't do that. That's going to end up in a regret. And it's just like this moment for David because this moment for David becomes a regret that he has to live with and carry the rest of his days. Never forgets about this one. David says, hey, give me the sword. Give me the sword. There's none like it. I want it. And David, in that moment, like this should have been the moment he gets the sword in his hand, right? This should have been the moment. This is like the background music, flashback movie moment where David remembers when he gets that sword in his hand what happened in that moment and how much he trusted God. But instead, he puts his faith in a sword that was wielded by a giant who was defeated by a 15-year-old boy. He put his faith in God. Because here's what David thought. 
He thought what every one of you and I think. When life doesn't go the way we expect, we think, if God was really with me, if God was really present, if God was really here, this wouldn't be happening to me. And we think, I must be the only one facing this situation. I'm the only one who has to deal with this. And there's a reality for every one of us, right? You've, you've, you've walked long enough with God. You, you kind of know this. I definitely have learned this in my life. Following God doesn't mean that you're free from chaos. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly or as you expect. I've learned this, that life is a little bit messy. But I think back to the moments early in my life when I was surrendering to God, early when I was in college and I was like, God, I just want to surrender to you. And so what I think, I think is so easy in that moment, so much easier in that moment to trust God when we have little to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. It's so easy when we come at this, we're like, you know, God, in this moment, I remember going forward and kneeling in a church and a God just speaking to me and I was like, God, I want to surrender everything to you. And it felt so big. You know, that, that retreat that you went to, that, that, that campfire that you sat around and you threw the stick in, that, that moment that you, you wrote a letter to God or you start dug in your scripture and it just changed you and you're like, God, I want to give you my whole life. And in that moment, God smiles and he says, that's good. But let's face it, you don't have any money yet. You don't have a wife or kids yet. You don't have very much to trust me with or for right now. So let's talk about this again in a few years. That's the way it works. That's the way surrender, that's what it looks like. Let's talk again. Easy to trust God when we have very little to trust him with, very little to trust him for. But when, see, when things are going great, right? When things are going great, it's easy to to come to church and to sing those worship songs and to say, yeah, God is good, God is great. Like, man, a peace be still like, yeah, I'm going to sing that. It's great when things are going well. When things are going great, it's easy to show up and to serve and to be excited about it. You know, when things, when things are going really great, it's easy to pray for your friend who has a lot of trouble in their life, who's just fighting to survive. It's easy to pray for them in that moment. When your life goes off the tracks, you know, goes off the rails, when, you're, when your things that you have, that you hold dear to you, are slipping through your fingers and life is not going the way you're expected, that's something else. When David takes Goliath's sword in his hand and puts his trust in that, it would be easy to critique him. The thing is, we all have our own version of that. Things in our life, we're like, God, no, no, I don't, God, not that. I'm gonna, I got to save that myself. I can't trust you with that. Because when we need God most is when we're apt to trust him the least. It's when we're apt to not lean into him, right? We try things that never worked before, that didn't get us here in our faith. The things that we trusted in, all the things that God's done, we're like, no, 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 I'm going to do it my own way. And it always leads to regret. And here's the thing, right, about David. Do you remember how he got to this place? He felt fearful. He felt abandoned. He felt betrayed. He felt alone. He was isolated. He isolated himself from others. And when the moment came, 
He did the things that he said he would never do. He lied. He took what he shouldn't have. He put his trust in what he shouldn't have. He trusted people he shouldn't have. And then Paul's, or Saul's, rather, King Saul's chief herdsman sees David with the priest and he reports it to the king. Chapter 22, he says, he says, he reports to him, like, listen, hey, the priest inquired of the Lord of him. He also gave him provisions, and he gave him the sword of Goliath. And then the king sent for the priest and all the people of his family and all the priests that were in Nob, and they all came to the king, and they stood before Saul. And remember that Saul is in this place where he has not been doing well for a long time, and he is extremely paranoid. And Saul says to him, why have you conspired against me, you and you and the son of Jesse, that's David, giving him the bread and the sword, inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. And the priest answers him. What are you talking about? The priest doesn't know anything about this because David didn't tell him anything about that. David didn't say, I'm running from the king. David didn't say, I'm in trouble. So the, the priest answers says, what are you talking about? The king's Servant David, he's loyal, he's respected, he's in charge of your bodyguard. What are you talking about? And by the way, this isn't the first time that I've done this for David. Like, why are you picking on me now? Like, I, I've, I, I've done this multiple times. Don't, don't accuse me and my family and the servants. I don't know anything about what's going on. I don't know what you're talking about. The king says to him, you'll surely die. The priest, you and your whole family. And the king orders the guards at his side to slaughter everyone. And that day, David's decision has this ripple effect. Eighty-five priests are killed. King Saul orders the death of every man, woman, child, and infant in Nob. Slaughtered. Nobody ever accused King Saul of being a good king. And one of Himmelet's sons gets away. Chapter 22, verse 22. He reports, reports this to David in verse 22. This is what David says. In this moment where he recognizes and has faces his regret, I am responsible. I am responsible for the death of your whole family. I am responsible for the death of everyone in that village. Because I didn't trust in God took it into my own hands. See, taking matters into our own hands, it may feel good, but it rarely ends well. There is no good ending to that story. Now, next week we're going to pick up with the story of David. But I want to just take a moment to answer, to just ask you a few questions, let you sit in a few questions about where this intersects in your life right now. What's going on in your own life right now? Because I think some of you are here today and you're like, did someone call you and tell you to preach this message today? The answer is, yeah, they did. They called me. They, no, they didn't. But listen, every one of us here today has this issue. We've all been here or we're going to be here or we are here. So, listen, every one of us is going to have a time in your life where you are angry and you're going to say something or do something that you regret. 
Every one of us here is going to have a time in your life where you feel betrayed, life didn't go the way you expected, and you feel lonely and abandoned, and you're going to make some choices that you would never normally make, but you're making them. You're doing things that you would never do, that you would be like, no, I'll never do that, but now they seem like real options for you. So, I just want you to sit in some questions. Maybe you want to get out your response card and just record what you observe in this moment. Here's the first one. What is your loneliness, anger, and fear causing you to consider right now that you've never considered before? Relationally, physically, financially, some sort of risk that you would normally never take. You would never go, no, I'm not going to do that. Maybe some habit that you had that you're thinking about re-embracing right now and it took you years or months or weeks or money to get out of and right now you're like, I'm, I'm going to do that again. I'm going I'm to take that again. I'm going to go after that again. Question number two. Who is your loneliness, anger, and fear causing you to consider that you wouldn't consider otherwise like you didn't you never called them back you never made contact with them again you never thought oh you thought no i'll never do that with him or her but in this moment in this time in this season who is it that you're going because of the way my job is because of the way my home is because of the way i'm not getting along with someone because of the way my life has gone it seems like a real option to take that step you're going i thinking about it and suddenly you're like, I don't know. Maybe I will. You know it's a terrible idea. Here's the big question. Here's the one that I think David would have liked to ask himself. Who besides you do your considerations put at risk? Just think about that. Who besides yourself? The you that's choice that you're about to make, that you're making, What's the ripple effect of that choice that's going to impact some other people in your life and devastate them? Okay, one more. What is the advice that you think Jesus would offer you today? What do you think he'd say to you? Like if you, if you just sat before him today, think about this, if, if Jesus was present and he is right here today, what advice would he do as he sat down beside you and he embraced you and he's put his arm around you and reminded you, you're not alone. I know this isn't going the way you think it needs to go, but I'm here. What would he say to you? Maybe you can't even imagine that right now because of where you are, so let me just ask you this. What advice would you give you? It's so much easier sometimes to see the disastrous consequences of somebody else's decision. You just stepped out of your situation for a second and what advice would you offer you right now? I know it's so easy to think I'm the exception. I can do this because it doesn't matter. Just I'm the only one. Listen, the past of regrets are well-worn. That's why we can recognize them so easily. That's why we know what we ought to say to others. So I want you to take a moment to sit with those questions. And as you think about what that is in your own life. Can I give you some advice I think David would give you? What future David would say to past David? We have it. It's in Psalm 9. He writes this in his journal later in life. The Lord 
is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. It's not a chemical. It's not a person. It's not alcohol. It's not an affair. It's, it's not a job. It's not a debt. It's not a new car. It's not a new house. It's not something else. The Lord alone is your refuge. The Lord alone is your stronghold. We don't really know what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a place where you run to for safety, where you run when everything else seems dangerous and alone. You run to it for safety. You run to that relationship with God. And you say, God, I need you. I'm about to have disaster in my life. And, and, and here's verse 10. Those who trust in you, for those who trust and know your name, Lord, have never forsaken. Know that you have never forsaken, that you have never left alone, that you have never forsaken those who seek you. Listen, listen. You thought you were forsaken, but you were mistaken. God's never left you. God's right here, right now, in your life. When you face those giants, fear, loneliness, anger, regret, listen, facing them is how you escape. Don't run, don't move. God's going to use them before he removes them. That's how God works. So don't run, don't move. Till you're led. Can I pray? I invite you into a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, oh, next time, and maybe in this moment, there's someone here that feels panicked today, overwhelmed by their circumstance, feeling like God, they feel like forsaken. They've forgotten that they're not forsaken. They're overwhelmed. They feel abandoned. They've got anger. There's someone that did something to them, or there's something that Life did not go the way they've expected. They're lonely. They feel abandoned. They don't even know if you're present. But today, Holy Spirit, will you give them the courage to just say, God, I'm running to you. I'm not going to try to control the outcome. God, I'm, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. God, I'm going to choose to be still. I'm going to choose to open up my heart. I'm going to choose to let you take me someplace else. Lord Jesus, we trust that in you today. Give us a new day and a new hope. And help us to enter into our hearts to be open to what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen.